and a very warm welcome to everyone. This is the Shuri Network's first podcast, a podcast for everyone. Are you struggling to understand what digital health means? Are you looking to start out, carve out a career, or simply intrigued about digital health? Have you ever wondered what the role of a CCIO, a CNIO, a CIO, or even a CHCIO is? Are these the only roles in digital health? You have come to the right place. We have an amazing and lineup of guests ready to share their inspirational journeys and provide practical advice get ready to be inspired get ready to be excited get ready to take that next step into the diverse world of careers and digital health hello and welcome to today's episode of the shuri network podcast I'm Aisha Rahim, and I'm a psychiatrist in the NHS, as well as the clinical lead for digital transformation in my organisation, otherwise known as a CCIO. And I'm Selena Lee, a healthcare account executive at Microsoft. I've got seven years experience in the health and tech industry, having worked at Southampton General Hospital for two years before moving into the private sector in the health tech space. So today we're going to talk about what is artificial intelligence or for the industry AI especially in the context of the NHS. Um, Aisha do you have much exposure to AI in your job? So actually I don't really use AI in the organisation that I work in however it is something I'm really interested in and I, I see lots of news stories about the innovation around AI and other different healthcare contexts, but also about some of the dangers and some of the pitfalls and some of the concerns about it from an ethics standpoint. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from our guests today about their perspectives and their expertise on this. What about you? So absolutely. Um, I guess I'm on the flip side where I work for a tech company. I absolutely see the use cases and where we can apply artificial intelligence or machine learning, um, but really interested to hear from the guests today how they tackle those misconceptions of AI and health and um, dispel some of the misconceptions. Um, so today we have two guests joining us on the podcast. One is Indra Joshi, the director of AI at NHSX. And secondly, we have Ele- Eleonora Harich, who is the Head of Collaborations at NHSX AI Labs. So from today's episode, we're going to hear Indra and Ellie talk about their journeys into their current roles, what they're excited about, some of the pitfalls and misconceptions, but also some of the benefits that AI can bring. And also, if you're interested, how you can get started yourself in a career in this field. Thank you, Indra and Eleonora, for joining us on today's podcast. To kickstart us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Of course. So thank you so much for, for having us today. So I'm Ellie Horwich, I'm Head of Collaborations at the NHS AI Lab, uh, which is a lab that sits within a broader organisation called um, NHSX, which is charged to um bring about digitization within the health and care system amongst uh, other other kind of things uh, like for example looking at uh, data and innovation within within the health and care landscape um so my role within that organization um is to make sure that the different programs that we have within the lab 
um, have the right kind of stakeholder engagement um, strategies and that we're really kind of interacting with all of the people who need to be involved in the AI conversation, but that we're also communicating it in a way which is, you know, not just for the experts and not just for the people who knew, who know loads about standards and all of the, those kind of acronyms that you find within the world of AI, but actually that the message can be spread quite wide and that people understand what it is that we want to achieve and really understand the benefits of this technology. Great, thank you very much, Eleanor. And Indra? Great, so hi everyone, I'm Indra and thanks so much for having me, a big fan of the Shuri Network. So thank you, Aisha and Selena. Um, and I very much can mirror what Ellie has just mentioned. So I work as the director of the NHS AI Lab and I won't repeat all the great things that she said. But just to give a bit of context, um, we're very much about the development and the deployment of AI technologies. And it can range from kind of what we call robotic process automation all the way up to quite deep learning uh, in images. So there's a big range that we're talking about. And we can talk a bit more about it later if helpful. Thank you very much. Could you help us understand what artificial intelligence means to yourselves? It's a type of technology that allows machines to perform tasks that would normally require human intelligence. To be quite honest, that definition is quite broad. It doesn't tell us much because there's no standard definition of intelligence either. Um, so what does AI really mean in healthcare? I think sometimes you can think about it um, or it can kind of speak to us a little bit more with the, the type of applications. Um, so, for example, artificial intelligence in healthcare can allow you to detect from images of, for example, mammography scans, if um, that image has any kind of traces of cancerous cells or not. So it allows you to kind of classify, basically, does it have cancer, not have cancer. So really, in terms of the capabilities that artificial intelligence has, it really allows you to basically kind of do three things. Number one, it can allow you to detect things in data. So be it images, be it you know electronic health records, whatever type of information you have, you can see basically if it's good at understanding what has already happened. Number two, it can help you potentially predict things. So things that haven't yet happened, sometimes it's actually quite good at looking at information and being like, oh, actually from the this, I can maybe detect what might happen in the future which then is very helpful in areas like healthcare because you can then target interventions earlier and obviously avoid that kind of negative outcome from happening. And then the third thing, as Indra mentioned at the very beginning, you have this kind of whole host of different applications of AI that allow you to automate things. And so this is basically, you know, say uh, from applications that might seem quite mundane, like, for example, scheduling, you can kind of automate the, you know, kind of reporting of some kind of clinical notes or, or different things like that. Um, so you have kind of a, a range of different applications that, that you can use. Thank you. That, that's really helpful. It's given us a really good overview of, of uh, AI in its broadest sense. There are lots of other terms, I think, that float around. And one of the things that, that crops up is, is machine learning. And I just wondered, Indra, if you could say a little bit about the difference between machine learning and AI. Are they the same thing? A purist would say they everything is just machine learning. Um, and then an even more purist would say, well, what is machine learning? Everything is just statistics. So you could break it down and break it down. What we quite often say, there are different types of artificial intelligence in the broadest academic sense. 
And machine learning is one of the types to to derive that, what we call intelligence. It's it's saying it's deriving either a pattern or looking at something, as Ellie mentioned, that the human brain can't uh, compute or see sometimes in terms of images. And and it is the machine that is doing that, i.e. it's the, the pattern we see in the data, which the human can't compute. So we call it the machine learning. So that's that's really interesting point about machines being able to do what humans can't. And that sounds like a no brainer on the surface, doesn't it? So I'm really interested about what are the barriers then for organisations on the ground that deliver healthcare? What are the barriers to them actually embracing this fully, do you think? Well, quite often the barriers are not unique to any particular type of technology. Um, and I don't think we're going to say anything magical. But if you you know, with with machine learning uh, and data analytics in particular, one of the, the key aspects is obviously data and data quality. And so one of the barriers we've seen is is frustratingly sometimes uh, the, the access to the data. So we all, people quite often say to us, oh, the NHS, but you've got loads of data and it's all there and you've got, you know, cradle to grave data. Uh, those of us in the system who understand it actually know that it's in hundreds, if not thousands of different pockets. And actually, if you want to do these kind of big compute uh, powers and, and really put um, some good machine learning over that, you do need access to quite large sets of data or very specifically what we call labelled sets of data, because the machine can only build a model or an algorithm on those specific sets of data and making sure that it's labeled correctly. So, for example, when we look at images, um, the very easiest example is to say, looking at a chest X-ray, a chest X-ray can be labeled normal, but it might not be normal, i.e. it might have an NG tube in, but it's a repeat X-ray and therefore it looks normal. And what I mean by an NG tube is a, a nasogastric tube. Similarly, it might be normal for the patient, i.e. They've, uh, they've had a repeat and they have some kind of pathology on it, but actually it isn't a, a bog-standard perfect X-ray. It's normal for that particular patient. So actually interpretation of a lot of uh, labels, so I've given images as an example, but this could go across a whole broad range of different inputs, is really important and can quite often be not necessarily a barrier, but a challenge to really getting that, those big sets of data. I suppose following off the back of that, I know that I've had conversations with colleagues, I know, Selena, you have as well, uh, with clinicians that are working in a healthcare setting that feel a little bit nervous around the safety aspect. And I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit, how, how do we assure the safety of those things, knowing that we have some issues that we need to resolve in the data sets? How, how do we make sure that what we are doing is clinically safe for patients? I think that's a really valid question and an extremely valid worry that the workforce has because obviously, you know, patient safety should be front and centre of everything. The really important thing to say here is that, you know, we've been dealing with technologies and innovation within the health and care sector for quite some time. So, you know, it's not as if there wasn't a kind of regulatory framework that already existed and is extremely robust and healthcare is a very heavily regulated field when you compare it to, for example, other areas of, of the public sector. Nonetheless, it's very true that obviously with any new technology, it might throw up some uh, new regulatory challenges of, you know, how do you go about clinically evaluating this? How, how do you go about making sure that it's actually, you know, going to work? How do we make sure that it's not going to have any potential um, negative impacts in terms of, you um, 
perpetrating existing societal biases, if it's, you know, so reliant, as we say, on good quality, good uh, and good labeled um, data. So all of these questions are obviously things that we are extremely aware of and 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 are things that we're kind of tackling head on within um, the AI lab. So both in terms of what needs to be done uh, in terms of either changes to, to the regulatory requirements that currently exist, and, and we, we you know, fund a whole program around regulation where, where we make sure that um, all of the regulators involved within the regulation of artificial intelligence, and there are a whole lot, um, because it's not just the, the 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 kind of usual people that we we think of of just you know regulating drugs and devices. There's also the aspect of the regulators who regulate the data. So we you know fund a whole program of work where we make sure that all of these people get round the table together and are there to sort uh, those those issues out. And and they are. Um, and there are actually quite a lot of requirements that innovators and manufacturers need to go through in order to be able to put their product to market. So it's not as if, you know, someone had an idea and was like, oh, this app is great and it's going to save lives and I'm going to immediately go to market. That's just not how innovation happens in healthcare, actually. It's something that is much slower. And once you have your brilliant idea, then you actually have to do clinical investigations and then studies. And then you kind of go through the regulatory requirements and potentially maybe three years later, you might be ready to go to market. But it takes it takes that long. So it's not, you know, it goes through quite a lot of um, of reviews. But then there's also another aspect which goes beyond regulation. Um, which is a little bit more within the realm of, I'd say, kind of AI ethics, which is really trying to to kind of make sure that other things which are not necessarily always captured by regulation are actually taken um, into account. And that's a really interesting pieces of work that um, are happening within within the labs program. So we have a whole um, initiative around ethics. One of the programs that they are, uh, sorry, one of the projects that they are looking at is um, healthcare inequalities um, and how could we potentially use AI as a force for good? So how could we use it in a way in which it can actually try and equalize healthcare inequalities rather than potentially make them worse? So it sounds like the whole process is quite a rigorous one to get any AI solutions into place. It'll be great to hear as well from yourselves. How are you supporting trusts who are looking to embark on that journey um, and help them with adopting the solutions and overcoming the barriers? Because I guess for some people, the concept of AI is quite daunting. So how do we help them? I mean, there's a number of different ways. So more broadly, if we take a step back away from AI, across both NHSX and England. And there's been a number of documents to try and help. So, for example, the data strategy, which came out of NHSX earlier this year, and the Office of AI has helped look at it much more broadly. So quite often in healthcare, we think of clinical, but actually we are a business uh, like any other. And so the Office of AI has very recently published an AI strategy looking across all of the sectors. And where we in particular are trying to support, so quite often trusts, they they want to help build their capability. So actually understanding what skills do we need within our team. And so we partner with Health Education England to help really look at those frameworks of capabilities and competencies. And on the flip side, we work directly both with trusts, but also with what we call arms length bodies, ALBs, to say, well, how can we help your either internal team look at maybe a, a problem. So, for example, of a problem we've helped um, look at is 
We've worked with a couple of trusts looking at long stays. So patients who stay long, how do we predict those? And so going in and reworking with a trust to both build the capability within their own um, team, but also bring in some external expertise such as data scientists and data engineers. And on the other side is funding. Quite often people need funding to make these things happen. We all understand the pressures the NHS is under. And so we have a programme of work called the AI Award, which looks at supporting um, those technologies that are market ready. They've been approved and they undergo, uh, Ellie mentioned, evaluation. So, and uh, Selena and Aisha, you mentioned earlier about, you know, how do we ensure that they're both safe and effective, which is a, a key aspect for us. And so they work both with the, the site, whoever it might be, and the technology company. So it's kind of a, a wraparound that we're trying to approach. That's great. It sounds like a, a really comprehensive programme of work that's going on to help implementation of uh, these technologies. And um, I've, I've heard you mention a couple of use cases about predicting who's going to stay in hospital longer. We've talked about uh, imaging uh, for diagnostics. What else from your perspective is on the horizon that you're really excited about in this field? What, what's coming up, do you think? So we get so much coming through the door. <laughs> like Every day I get very excited when I talk to um, colleagues, both on the front line, but also within, um, within different policy groups. We have, and it's not so much exciting, uh, but it is necessary. We have focused very much on trying to help with the recovery so we're very conscious that, you know, the NHS has been under a huge amount of pressure over the last few years. And so how do we really help with that recovery over the last year? And so we've got a couple of technologies coming through there. But just on a more practical front, we talked to um, had a really interesting conversation uh, yesterday with an ambulance trust, really looking at, you know, how do we start looking at um, the data that comes through 999 calls, for example, and really helping either see and treat or prioritising those that even need even more prioritising on the back of, of some of their algorithms that they've already got. And so quite often, I think we think about clinical and diagnostics, but actually there's a huge amount that can be done in the background and just kind of helping triage, but helping really uh, streamline care and helping people in that is very exciting. There's quite a few examples which I can kind of reel off, but I'll hand over to Ellie because uh, she sees a slightly different side to me as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I, I completely agree with with you, Indra. And, and ultimately, it's um, it's kind of difficult to pinpoint really like which particular area you would see kind of most innovation kind of coming through. Because it's true that when you look at the diversity of companies that have come through the AI and Health and Care Award that we support, there's there's just so much. You know, there's companies looking at how you might be able to use AI to to deliver cognitive behavioral therapy. You have, you know, a whole host of, of companies around the, the kind of world of medical imaging, either trying to detect stroke uh, or to detect cancer. And, you know, you have a kind of a whole di diversity of, of, of different applications of AI. Some of the interesting kind of applications that, you know, might be Slightly less sexy than saying, I mean, not that necessarily having cancer is, is something to kind of laugh about, but it's obviously very, very um, impressive to say, you know, we can detect cancer at this, you know, extremely high accuracy rate. And, and thanks to this, well, actually, you know, X many um, less people will die of, of, of this um, kind of terrible condition. But it's more around, for example, looking at how do you increase 
the operational efficiency of the way that 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 things work. So say, you know, if you were to optimize the scheduling of, of operating theaters um, across the NHS, how many more operations would you be able to, to deliver? Is those those type of um, of questions that, you know, are not necessarily the kind of ones that always get advertised, but I think the ones that that could make a kind of genuine, um, genuine difference. Um, and then also, of course, you know, if you kind of look kind of try to take a step back and look at a lot of where the market is driving the innovation. Obviously, the field of medical imaging is a very exciting one um, because it's a field where ultimately we do have data, which is, you know, kind of somewhat more accessible and a slightly better quality than than the rest of the the type of information that we have within, within health and care, which is not to say that you can't do things with other with other types of data, but it's still, you know, just um, a, a little bit better than than the rest of the information out there. So actually, there's there's quite a lot that can be done in that field. And, and you know, that can range, as I mentioned, from, you know, trying to detect stroke all the way through to to many applications in oncology and, and so on. Thank you. That's really exciting to hear how diverse the potential is for what AI can help us do in terms of delivering better care for our patients. But one of the things I was going to come back on, and this is something I think related to what you were saying previously, Ellie, about bias and AI, because obviously part of the lens through which we are having this conversation is through diversity and inclusion. And I guess we need to make sure that the clinical decisions that we're making off the back of technology that's related to AI are absolutely uh, fit for purpose and are applicable to people of all backgrounds. And we know that sometimes there are some groups of people that come from underrepresented demographics. And how do we ensure that we are making our conclusions representative and applicable to everybody? I just wonder if you both of you have thoughts on that for any device to be put on the market there's this thing which is a bit a little bit of a little bit of a barbaric term but it's called intended use and so that's when a manufacturer needs to state exactly very specifically how your ai is meant to be used so that will be the population the way that you're supposed to go about using it so actually if you put on the market a device where you say this is intended for everyone and it actually hasn't been trained on a diverse data set and and so on uh, you as a manufacturer become legally liable of this and actually that's quite problematic and to be quite honest medical device regulation would be able to protect patients from that situation uh, coming about. So it's not as if you could you know, necessarily be able to put all types of devices saying it is for everyone when actually you haven't trained it on, on the type of, of information that would make it representative enough. We still need to make sure that we put mechanisms in place where we can still test things on a kind of representative data set because the way that regulation works right now is that manufacturers basically just need to provide the information to regulators by basically saying this is the kind of training data set that we've trained things on, this is what we've done, but no one kind of really goes down in the kind of weeds of really kind of triple checking everything against nationally representative data sets. So sorry if this is kind of getting a little bit into the kind of, of how this works, 
But for example, one of the things that we think um, is kind of very interesting of the national medical imaging program that we're, we're um, seeking to, to develop within the AI lab is to do exactly that, to develop those nationally representative curated data sets so that we can then test algorithms against and make sure that actually on a nationally representative curative data set of the UK population, there is no adverse effects uh, for specific uh, populations and that then hopefully we'll be able to either, you know, mean that manufacturers might still be able to put their device on the market, but they need to change the intended use so that it clearly specifies cannot be used on this specific population or you need to kind of change your commercial claims so that they reflect these things because it actually maybe is not for everyone, but still good enough for, for a good chunk of the population, but not for everyone. And so that's what we were kind of really seeking to, to achieve here. So, you know, there, there are ways in which, you know, regulation does obviously protect consumers for these things, but there are still things that you know we could do to, to improve the current situation. Because this is very close to both of our hearts, another project we set out earlier this year with the Health Foundation so Ellie's talked about regulation and devices, but if you take it down to the data and data bias in particular is really saying, how do we create better policy frameworks? For example, if you're applying for funding uh, with NIHR, the National Institute of Health Research, how do we help them understand through their funding criteria or their uh, applications really how to identify data bias? Um, and so we funded a few projects for example, looking at diabetic retinopathy, we know that uh, the Indian population, for example, is at higher risk of diabetes. And so what are the different criteria if you really go down to the data levels that we're looking at to ensure that that data is representative in those retinopathy scans to then say, OK, when you're building your model on top of that, how do we know that it actually um, what's the power level, for example? So. There's no one size fits all in here. It's about trying to take the different approaches. And then as a so for us as a lab, as a program of work to try and plug it into the right places. But it is a bit like when you asked about the barriers and the adoption. It's a really a multi pronged approach that we're trying to take. Yeah, because I guess these kinds of measures will help build that confidence in the public, build that confidence in the clinicians that we want to be adopting these processes. Uh, so I, th I think there's there's lots of benefit from having really clear regulation to, to help us along that journey too. Indra, Ellie, really love to hear about your roles and the projects that you're working on right now. Um, but I'd love to hear more about your journey and how you got to where you are so that the listeners today could could hear about it and how do they follow in your footsteps? So I trained as a doctor. I trained in emergency medicine and I loved it. I really, really enjoy being in the A&E and I thought this was great. Um, I had some babies, as people do if they're female, and at one point I thought, I'm neither seeing my children nor am I seeing my family uh, and this is not the kind of life I want to lead. So I went part time um, and at the same time, I happened to be interested in digital health. So at the time I was very interested and now this was about, I don't know, maybe 12, 14 years ago when we talked about Web 2.0. So the, the generation who have no idea what I'm talking about, <laughs> it's when, when you had user generated content on the internet. Now, you know, back in the day, that was unheard of. 
now today it's unheard of that you don't have user-generated content on the internet. But it really, it really puzzled me that why weren't clinicians and doctors more using the internet and making it better for them? And that just sparked off a whole interest in the field at the time was telehealth, telemedicine. It's now digital health. And that's what sparked a career drive for me, you know, and I tried to go and do different things. I worked in startups. I worked in policy. I decided I want to improve my own skills and and did a couple of research projects. And from there, I would say I applied for different jobs and I tried to break away from that kind of escalator of, you know, trainee become consultant, become medical director, and then who knows, you rule the world in whichever department you're in. And I tried to say to myself, okay, let's try something different. And so I did and ended up where I am today. So to give to give advice is try, just try something different and make lots of friends. I think as clinicians, we quite often like our very select uh, clinical friends who <laughs> can quite often give us a slightly skewed world, skewed view of the world. And actually, you know, go and talk to some data scientists or technology people, find the CTOs, you know, just find some friends. And obviously, I wouldn't be able to end my bit without saying, join a network, whichever network it might be. So for for me, for example, I joined a network called One Health Tech, which Ellie mentioned earlier. There is the Shuri network as well. And it really opens your eyes to like what else is out there beyond your very direct sphere of work. And also it allows you to make friends and really understand what is needed in different application forms, for example, to get there. Thank you so much, Indra. So it sounds like two main things I picked out from there was try something different and get more friends. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess, Ellie, can I hand that question over to you as well to hear yeah. about your journey and how you got to where you are? I guess my main thing when I kind of wanted to choose my studies was that I care about people and I want to help people. So at the age of 18, I thought to myself, great, I'll study social policy and that's how I'm going to help people. Big fail. Didn't really kind of meet my uh, my uh, my expectations at all. Um, really, really not. And I was like, oh crap, what am I going to do now? Um, good thing is because of my friends, and actually friends are very important for that. Um, I realised, and I was surrounded at the time by loads of people studying economics, and I was like, oh, this sounds cool. And they were telling me all about their kind of, you know, this field of economics where you have statistics applied to it and you can measure the impact of policy and you can understand, like, what's the impact of if you do this? Does it reduce poverty? Does it does that? And I was like, ah, oh, sounds really awesome. Then I kind of veered over in, in that direction a little bit of, of a kind of more quantitative route of trying to, to, to understand that, which, you know, once you had kind of made a decision, it's actually not that easy to, to veer. But anyway meandering route I took, uh, went through that, did uh, then a kind of conversion course into applied mathematics, was also not fun. So I was like, this is definitely not what I want to do. And then eventually managed to kind of land into the field of economics and policy evaluation, absolutely loved it. And then thought to myself, I really want to, you know, work in a think tank. In the interim, I have worked in like different industries and also kind of a failure of this is not what I want to do. And eventually worked in policy, absolutely loved it. And then found digital health as a total accident, really. I kind of got given a project to work on looking at, you know, if you were to do AI in the NHS, what would it look like? And so I got to do a research project on that, adored it. Um, and that's actually how I came across the One Health Tech Network. And I completely second Indra on the fact that it's um, that it's an amazing thing, actually, because it, it does 
open your contacts, your perspectives, your ways of thinking about things. Um, you get introduced to people who are just like, oh, but why don't you apply for this? Or like, you could go for this. And it's just, they genuinely expands your horizons incredibly. And people are generally there in these communities. And I'm sure Shree Network is the same as like, you're there to lift yourself up, right? And to like extend that helping hand. And so, and so then, yes, that's uh, kind of how, how I did. I then, you know, absolutely fell in love with the area of digital health and was like, this is awesome. And actually this is where my quants background kind of became quite helpful because it's like, oh, I can understand some of the statistics behind this. Uh, and then it all kind of made sense. And all of the stuff that, to be quite honest, very personally had seemed like, you know, loads of like, oh, I'm going to start this and then stop this and didn't really make sense at the time actually became so useful so so useful later on in my career and kind of made me change my perspective about the decisions that I had taken much younger a bit of a meandering route but I, what I would say as a kind of key takeaway from all of this experience is I think quite similarly to Indra like try stuff if it feels like a failure it possibly won't be and you know like with hindsight you will definitely have learned something out of it uh, and you will grow stronger and and that's the only way that you learn really <laughs> so yeah Oh, no, thank you so much for sharing. And and it sounds like the golden thread, though, even though it's been meandering, you started off in social policy and you wanted to do good. So it's great that it's led you to where you are. Um, and you also mentioned big fail. But I think a key message here is fail fast and don't be afraid to try different things. I fully um, align with that thinking because I'm actually a biochemist myself and I've gone to the NHS and now I'm in tech. I think that for people on um, listening to this podcast, try. So thank you so much for sharing, Ellie. Last question to end on. If we have people that might be listening to this who are interested in AI and finding out a little bit more or even possibly developing a career along these lines, where should they go for more info? Please visit the NHSX website, essentially nhsx.nhs.uk, and it's a forward slash AI dash lab. And we've got quite a lot of content on there. Also, there are quite a number of books out there. Um, as an advocate for the Shuri Network and as, a, as a, a female in health tech, unfortunately, quite a number of these books are written by men. Uh, and so we talked a little bit about bias uh, earlier. They have a slightly different view of, of um, healthcare and machine learning. But there's quite a number of books out there. And the best way to really learn about some of this stuff is to either get really stuck in. So if there's a project in your local trust or in your community practice, get stuck in. And if there's not, is go and find people, join a network, go and find people and talk to them about it. And actually, you'll learn an awful amount um, by actually talking to people too. I agree with that. And so the only thing that I'd add is, is possibly just through different networks um, or also, you know, kind of Eventbrite and so on. There are actually quite a lot of events that you can attend on this, all the way from things that, you know, maybe you, you know, if you're quite quite a, an early stage you might not understand but maybe you'll capture like a third of it and then you'll see like you'll stick to it and by the end you'll be like the total expert in it but but yes I think just just try try things out it's it's hard because the thing is that the field of AI I think just mixes so many different things so it's not you, you know you can't we can't really say you necessarily absolutely need a technical background you don't um 
I mean, it's it's good, but it's not absolutely necessary. Do you need a do you need a background in ethics? You know, it's important, but also not necessary. It's just it's just so many different fields mixed together that it it's hard to say really how how you know what would the school of AI look like in healthcare? It would be a, a lot of a lot of different uh, subjects and a lot of different topics to to look at. So basically, don't don't think that you're not from the right background or that you don't have you know, the right knowledge, there will be resources that you will be able to access. And as Indra said, like, ultimately, a lot of the things that we publish on, on the website are really kind of meant to be read for people who don't necessarily have a background in it. So should be accessible. If you were to step back in time and give yourself some career advice at the beginning of your journeys, what would it be? What have you learned? And what would you share? There's so much advice I would give myself. And the honest piece is don't be fearful. You know, you won't get it right first time. And that's fine. And I think when you're starting your career, you feel that you have so much to prove, so much to, you know, yes, you know, you've, you've done this and, and you want to earn whatever it is and get a good, good career to make a name for yourself. And you put so much effort into that. Um, and then, as Ellie says, you know, you might pivot and, and you become disappointed in yourself and say, oh, my God, you know, what a waste of whatever many years of that. And nothing is a waste. You know, life is cliche, but life is a journey and your career is a journey. Mm. And you might not make the first step right, but that doesn't mean you didn't get it right. So I would say to myself, worry less, have a bit more fun, uh, enjoy it. Um, and if it all goes arse over tits, it's not the end of the world. You know what? Put yourself off, brush yourself down, carry on. Um, tomorrow's always a better day. I'd completely echo that. I think it's just the the kind of general attitude that we have or, or actually just never really get taught about the importance of making mistakes and just, you know, learning to it's fine. You'll get over it. And, 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 and things, things will continue. It's not the end of, uh, it's not the end of, of things. And I think you just tend to be much more dramatic at the beginning of, 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 you know, when you start working because things just seem so like, Oh my God, out of reach, or it's going to be impossible. And you just get very stressed. Um, so I'd say, yes, like making mistakes is fine. <laughs> Be less dramatic. And I think the, the other thing that affected me from time to time was comparing myself to some of my peers who were just like so far ahead. And I was like, oh, my God, where am I? And like, it's yeah, it's um, just forget about that. Just stop comparing yourself. What a great interview there, all killer, no filler. Uh, I don't know about you, but one of the things that's really striking me about these uh, interviews that we're having with special guests is how that thread of people and connections and wanting to do good in the world is so common to everybody. And that really came through from the conversation we've had today. What about you? What's what's your take home message? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other uh, message that I've been hearing throughout these podcasts is, just try, try something new. Don't be afraid to fail. And you just might land in a role that you absolutely love. <laughs> yeah, 100%. It's it's great, isn't it, to hear how people's career pathways have been anything but linear. And uh, yeah, I think that will really speak to a lot of people. Thank you for listening today. We really hope you enjoyed the episode. So please subscribe and share the episode with other people. And if you want to know more about the Shuri Network or you want to feedback or even suggest topics for future episodes, visit shurinetwork.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Network Shuri, where you can find out more about what we're doing. 
See you next time. time. <laughs>